Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people and about spiritual topics and sometimes science and spirituality. We've done nearly 700 of them now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu where you'll see them organized in four or five different ways. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there are PayPal buttons on the site and there's a page explaining alternatives to PayPal. And when I say listeners and viewers, it's because this exists as an audio podcast on all the various podcast feeds, as well as a video on YouTube. My guest today is Anthony Peake. I first became aware of Anthony a few months ago when I interviewed Penny Sartori, and there were some events or something that she and he did together, and I really liked listening to him speak, and I thought, oh, I'd like to interview that guy too. So here we are. Anthony is the author of 12 books. He has lectured across the UK and Europe and has also given talks in New York and Melbourne, Australia. He's appeared on national TV in Germany and France and has been interviewed on numerous BBC local radio stations and nationally on BBC Radio 5 Live. That doesn't tell us too much about you, Anthony, but I thought I might start by asking, what was it about your formative years that led to the kinds of things that you've been thinking and writing about in all of your books, many of which we're going to discuss today? Hello, Rick. It's lovely to talk to you. Very much uh, been looking forward to this. And it's, it's wonderful that you uh, had chatted with uh, Penny, who is one of my favourite people. She's absolutely wonderful researcher in near-death experiences. I've always been interested in the relationship between consciousness and external reality. And ever since I was a child, it's something that's intrigued me. You know, I used to lie in bed and I used to wonder about the universe, what my role in the universe was, and exactly what I was was this piece of sentience that seemed to just be there. You know, I didn't ask to be there. I just was. And I came from, well, a reasonably religious family, I would say. Not overtly so, but, you know, I was brought up in a, a spiritual tradition in many ways. But I never really took to the, the standard religion viewpoint, and I was always a rebel. But at the same token, I thought, you can't throw the baby out with the dishwater, with the bathwater, because you've got to understand that there's more to life than just science and everything else. When I was 12, I had double pneumonia and I was quite seriously ill. And during that time, I had a series of very, very powerful hallucinations. Those hallucinations, even at 12 years of age, made me think, you know, well, what's happening here? Where are these? These hallucinations seem to be projecting out into three-dimensional reality around me, coming from my brain, but they seem to be out there. And I became so intrigued by that. When I recovered, I started to buy a weekly magazine that used to come out that turned into an encyclopedia in the UK, and it was called Man, Myth and Magic. And Man, Myth and Magic took you through from anthropology to magic to, to in, a, in a fairly academic way, I have to say, rather than a sensationalist, as you'd expect. And that really developed my interest in sociology, developed my interest in psychology, psychiatry. And I then had the opportunity when I went to university, I decided like an idiot, I would do a dual honours degree, which meant I had to do two degrees at the same time in parallel, which was not the cleverest of things to do really at the time. And I did a, a dual honours degree in sociology and history. 
And that gave me the opportunity to study in depth the development of ideas, the development of, um, I was particularly interested in the religious movements during the English Civil War. I was interested in the religious movements that took place after the Thirty Years' War in Germany, for instance, and subsequently the esoteric traditions that developed within Europe from the Renaissance onwards, you know, the rediscovering of ancient Greek philosophies and everything else as well. And that moved me into areas of interest in magic, interested in esoteric systems. And also I became interested at that stage in terms of ghosts, hauntings, poltergeists, and the UFO phenomenon. But I've always taken a very rigidly rationalist approach to it. My philosophy is always start with the science, start with the proof, and work your way from the proof to the speculation. And I was in the position that I then did postgraduate at the London School of Economics, and I, I had a career in business. But I always wanted to write. And in 1999, I had the opportunity to take, to take a year out to write a book. My wife was very accommodating. And she said, you've been wanting to write this book for years. You've been reading around these subjects. You have seemed to have a, an encyclopedic knowledge of your subject matter, both from the science, both from the quantum physics to the psychology to the neurophysiology and everything. Just do something. And I started to write the book. The book, initially, I didn't even know what I was going to be writing about. Now, one of the things I've always suffered from um, is classic migraine. Um, it's one of the things that's always been through my life, and I get aura states. Aura states are the prodrome. They are the, the sensations you have before you have a proper migraine state. So ordinarily, when people have migraine, they just get a headache. But when you have classic migraine, you get aura states as well. And it's a, a, a really weird feeling. of A-U-R-A? A-U-R-A, yes. Like you're I'm, seeing auras or something? Or? Yeah, you see what happens with me. What starts is normally my fingertips start to go numb. Then my lips start to go numb. And then my visual field breaks up. So what I will do is I'll have a series of things that are called scotomas, which are like jagged edges and fizzes. It starts as a kind of fizzing in my visual field. It gets bigger and bigger. And I literally cannot see. It just completely wipes out my visual field with these kind of zigzag shapes. It's called castellation is the technical term for it. But also when I was doing this, when I was about to, to start writing, one of the other things that I always used to have in an aura state was profound deja vu sensations. You really get this overpowering shiver of recognition that you've done this before. So when I came out of the state I realized that's what I needed to write about. I wanted to write about deja vu or what it was, how it functioned. And I was fortunate enough to make contact with a gentleman called Dr. Arthur Funkhauser, who is a quantum physicist by background. He's an expert in holography. He's an American guy that lives in Switzerland, and now he's a Jungian analyst. And Art had written a couple of papers on deja vu, which were intriguing and fascinating. One of them was called The Dream Theory of Deja Vu. And his argument is that when you're having a deja vu sensation, you're remembering a dream you've had recently. You are reliving the dream. It's a kind of like a precognition. And I thought that was very intriguing. And I decided to start looking into the neurophysiology of the deja vu state. And I made links between, not me, but the research had made links between that and another illness, um, another illness, another altered state of consciousness, if you want, for a better term, linking with uh, temporal lobe epilepsy. People who have temporal lobe epilepsy have even more extreme aura states and even more extreme precognitive deja vu states. I then discovered that there was a neurological link neurochemically between those two states 
and the near-death experience. And that certain neurotransmitters, neurotransmitters are the, um, the chemicals that facilitate the communication between the neurons in the brain. And in the body, they've discovered over 100 different neurotransmitters, and they modulate our behavior like serotonin and dopamine and various other things. But one of them is known as glutamate. Glutamate is a linkage between temporal lobe epilepsy, near-death experiences, and migraine auras. I then realized I'd had the basis of a book because I started to research. I joined the International Association of Near-Death Studies. And fortunately, Professor Bruce Grayson, who at that time was the, the main man at, the, uh, at IANS, was very interested in my work. Whom I've interviewed, if people want to check that out. Oh, he's a lovely man, Bruce. Yeah, he was so great. helpful. He really was. He, he went out of his way to help me. There were certain quotations I couldn't get for the, the paper he was peer reviewing of mine. And he went out of his way to try and find the quotes at the source of the quotations for me, which was wonderful. And he said, look, write a paper for IAMS and write it for the journal. And that was published in 2005. Now, at that time also, I was in contact with a lady also you might know of, a lady called uh, Phyllis Atwater, PMH Atwater. Oh, PMH, I've heard of her, of course. Oh, right. Okay. And she was, again, very helpful. And she read the first draft of the book and she was very helpful. She turned around and she said, okay, you've now written the book for you. Now go and rewrite it for your readers, which I thought was great advice. And in fact, PMH and I did the event in uh, Melbourne together in Australia. So I met her in Australia. But at that stage, I'd written the paper, but I hadn't got a book deal because I had then gone back to work and the book had been written. Then I rewrote it again. I managed to get an agent and the agent tried to get me one book deal with a publisher. But quite by chance, I heard of a publisher called Arcturus in London and I sent in my manuscript to them and, you know, they get tons of manuscripts, you know, publishers do. And what happened, and this is again, an area I'm really interested in was that the managing director, Ian was flying to New York for a business meeting. And he literally went into his office and picked up a, a manuscript at random that was just on his desk, which happened to be mine. And he read it while he was on the flight over to New York and he landed in New York had read the manuscript and said, we've got to have this book. Can you contact the author, bring him in? And they did. They took the book and it came out in 2006. And the rest is history, really. That's great. And there's lots of nice little nuggets in that whole account, but even him randomly, as if anything were random, picking up that particular manuscript and reading it on the plane. I don't believe in accidents. No, very much. We'll probably get into that. Yeah, it is. It's just these little, I call them synchronipities, an amalgam of serendipity and synchronicity. Serendipity. And I think that these things do happen for a reason and a purpose because it's happened too often. I'm also very into Jung and Jung's concept of synchronicity, von Klein Pauli's idea of synchronicity, but also the way in which synchronicities seem to be like almost the Jungian library angel. You get the information when you need it. Yeah. And I felt all through my writing career that has happened. You know, I often feel like I'm watching a play that's been scripted by this brilliant playwright. And as, as things unfold, I think, well, that's an interesting, I didn't see that coming, but I can see now why that happened. And well, I wonder if it'll lead to this. And then there's a plot twist and or whatever, but it's not rigidly scripted because I have some improvisational latitude as an actor in this play and can kind of tweak it this way and that. And then the circumstances of life adapt accordingly. 
Maybe I'm making it too dualistic and maybe I don't have that latitude, but that's the way I perceive it. It always amuses me, doesn't it? When you, when you get these um, synchronicities that are rooted, you know, as, as Camera called them, you know, the, the, you know, the roots of coincidence and the synchronicities. Uh, Martha Kessler wrote about it as well. And the idea that sometimes you get these series of synchronicities and then you see the joke. Yeah. And you, there's a joke you haven't seen there. There's a kind of a double pun taking place and you go, oh, yeah. I know why you did that now. Yeah, very funny. That's and I great. love that. And it's like, you know, that sudden shimmer that reality isn't what it seems, that it's nested and it's rooted. I've just finished watching a German TV series on Netflix called Dark. And that is fascinating because that has this whole idea of the Emirates Many Worlds interpretation, the idea of there's multiple paths that we follow and we choose one path or the other. Very, yeah. very interesting. You probably saw that movie Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, yes. Did you see that? Yeah, I, I argue that, and I'm in negotiations with one of my publishers now, because I've, I've got four different publishing houses that publish my work. But one of them, I'm really interested in writing a book on the parallels between my writings and movies, mm-hmm. because there are so many. And I argue that it's part of the zeitgeist or the Weltgeist. It's something yeah. we instinctively know. And writers bring it out and it's becoming more and more. There are so many series at the moment deal with these things. That could be a great book. I mean, because you touch upon so many interesting things that are in so many great movies, everything from extraterrestrials to altered states to precognition, all kinds of things. So you could like dip into dozens of hit movies and spin off all kinds of deep insights. That'd be great. That would be fun because, as we mentioned before we started, I've also written a biography of the American science fiction writer Philip K. Dick. And, of course, Phil Dick's books have been adapted into so many different movies, Mm. but his ideas permeate things like The Matrix and everything else as well. And clearly it is, again, this idea of this underlying system of belief that people have about the true nature of reality. And I think what is happening now is that there's a movement away from this kind of absolute materialist reductionist worldview that everything is just physical and there is nothing else to an understanding that there is a symbiotic relationship between consciousness and reality, consciousness bringing the wave function into existence, collapsing the wave function in quantum mechanics. And the idea that we are much closer to involving it. It's almost like by his bootstraps. We are co-creating this reality. And in one of my recent books, The Hidden Universe, I argue that I come up with a concept I call the egregorial, which is the idea that we, in some way, our anticipations create the reality around us and we co-create that. And I call that egregorial reality. And that we bring into existence, for instance, the amount of times that quantum physicists would go, we need a particle here. And lo and behold, they find it. Like the classic example was when they discovered the muon. They had thought there should be a particle there. And then one day they found it. And there was the um, Nobel Prize winner, E.E. E. Rabi, who was a top quantum physicist. And when they discovered the muon, his actual first thing was, who ordered that? <laughs> you know, with the same lines as if it was a pizza that somebody had ordered. And, you know, right through history, there's always been this, as if the scientists themselves the anticipation the scientists have seem to bring about the science in order to accommodate. And this is why we have now this problem with what we know as the particle zoo, because we have so many subatomic particles and we need to reduce them down. And it seems that our science, and it could be, this is why religious beliefs now within Buddhism is the concept of the tulpa. 
the Belgian-French explorer, Alexander Neal. She created a tulpa when she was in Tibet in the 1920s. What's a tulpa? A tulpa is a thought form. In Tibetan Buddhism, very much the Tibetan Buddhism of the Bon tradition in the Tibetan plateau, which is very much come out of the shamanic tradition of that area. Um, they believe that you can create thought forms. And what happened was Alexander Neal and a group of her monk friends were wandering around that area and they decided to create a thought form and they worked on it and concentrated and they manifest this little monk and he was round and he was jovial. He was, he was very convivial and he followed them round. But as time went on, he became more independent of them and became far more malevolent. And in the end, they had to dissipate him. They had to destroy him because he was taking on a life of his own. Now, of course, there's a counter argument here to say this is what happens with poltergeists. This is what happens with certain ghost manifestations. It could be the genesis of the jinn within Islamic tradition. They seem to come from somewhere else, but they seem to use our anticipations to come into this reality in some way. Now, again, there's an American friend of mine. Excuse um, me, I keep thinking of Ghostbusters, where I think it might have been Bill Murray who thought of the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man (laughs) that came marching down the street. Well, it's so true, you know, because you you probably know in 1970 in Toronto, in Canada, an experiment took place with a group of English academics who were affiliated to the University of Toronto, and they became very interested in Ouija boards. And they decided as psychologists, they were interested in what was taking place when the glass moved. And they thought it must be us doing it, but we're doing it subconsciously. And what they decided to do, and it was extraordinary, they decided to create a ghost. And one of them went away and created a whole mythical backstory, fictional backstory of a character called Philip Aylesford. And Philip Aylesford, the lady decided, was an English nobleman who lived in the 1680s after the aftermath of the English Civil War. He was in a loveless marriage. He was an outsider because he was a Roman Catholic and he fell in love with a gypsy girl. Then his wife finds out and he commits suicide by jumping off the battlements of the castle. That was the backstory. But it started to manifest and it started to manifest within the group. And initially it was via the Ouija board, but then it started to be able to table turn. There were table turnings taking place. And if you go online, there was table turning taking place on a live TV studio in Toronto in about 1971, where you actually see the table move. Now, to me, this was, again, evident of the power of the egregorial, the power of anticipation. Now, there is an American friend of mine, which you would find interesting to interview, is a guy called Paul Eno. He's a relative of Brian Eno that used to play for Roxy Music. And he used to be a Catholic priest. And he got defrocked because him and his mates, his Catholic training priests, were wandering around New England ghost busting. (laughs) And obviously the Catholic Church didn't like this, so he ceased to be a priest. But He has a very interesting theory about manifestations and ghosts. He's done some extraordinary work, and he argues it's to do with plasma. And these entities use plasma and electricity to manifest themselves in this reality. And again, it's very similar to my hypothesis. He wrote a wonderful book called Dancing Past the Graveyard, which is about some of his experiences with hauntings. So what I'm arguing is that my hypothesis is so broad and so deep I think I can explain most unusual phenomenon in different ways. And I think I can stop at the starting point of the science. I think I'm rambling. I should stop rambling. That's a good ramble. A few thoughts I want to bring in. 
I was reminded of the fact that there are many stories in the Vedic literature of pundits or whoever they were doing rituals in order to bring some entity into existence to serve a certain purpose, go fight a battle or kill a demon or various things like that. And if they do the ceremony correctly, the yagya correctly, then this being arises out of the flames or something. I think there's probably a lot of myths like that in in various cultures. Another thought, as you were speaking, I was wondering, do these things exist in some kind of astral realm or something? And it's through our intention or ceremony or, or Ouija board or whatever that gives them a portal through which to manifest. And one other thought, you were talking earlier how when you were younger, things sort of had to pass the test of science in a way. But I'm reminded of that quote, who was it, Einstein or somebody who said that the universe is not only stranger than we imagine, but stranger than we can possibly imagine. And so I think that the kinds of things we're talking about today are necessarily going to rub up against the limitations of science over the coming decades. And there'll be this mutual benefit, I think, where science gets its boundaries broken and stretched over and over and over again. And on the other hand, esoteric stuff and spirituality is made to be a bit more rigorous and less prone to flights of fancy. I agree with you totally. I mean, I find myself and there's, there's a group of academics I work with over the years and we're a growing group at the moment. Particularly, there's a, a lot of young academics coming up now in the, the early 30s who are very, much more open minded. But I'm always reminded, you know, that you'd be open minded, but not as open minded that your brain falls out. <laughs> and I think that is the issue, really. It's very easy to get drawn into these things. But as long as you keep an eye on the science, on logic and common sense, but at the same token, realizing that quantum physics is telling us that there is something extraordinary going on. We don't fully understand so many things. You know, 94% of the universe is missing. It's dark matter and dark energy. And we call it dark matter and dark energy because we don't know what it is. Then we have the mystery of black holes. We have the idea of the zero point field, zero point energy. There are so many things. And this is why a number of the top quantum physicists who started the whole thing in the 1930s and the 1940s, from Wolfgang Pauli to Heisenberg to Schrodinger, all of them moved towards the mystical. I mean, Schrodinger, towards the end of his life, wrote this wonderful book called What is Life? We know that uh, Niels Bohr, very much said the idea of the mystical and and even Werner Heisenberg, they all were interested in the implications of what quantum physics was telling us. Subsequently, we've discovered now, you know, there are subatomic particles that come in, flit in and out of existence from the ether, or for want of a better term, the zero point field. And we don't even know even now how, and I argue this in my books, how inanimate matter reacting with electricity in your brain creates Rick Archer, all your hopes, your dreams, your personality. That's all created out of inanimate matter. An inanimate matter that is 99.9999999999996 empty space. So when we say that there's a physical universe around us, we are so far wrong. It is an illusion. The only reason you don't fall through the chair you are sitting on now is because of electrostatic repulsion, because the atoms in your backside are negatively charged and the electrons whizzing round the perimeter 
of the nucleus of the atoms in the chair are also negatively charged, which means light, like a magnet, like charges repel. So you're hovering above the chair, just like whenever you think you touch something, you never touch anything because you're never in contact with anything at any time. I've heard you say that in your book and one of your interviews that I was listening to, and I had a question, which you can probably answer, which is that just as the negative charges prevent me from falling through the chair, what enables all the atoms in my body to congeal or cling together as opposed to being thrown apart by their negative charges? Right. Well, the first thing is in terms of the forces in the universe, as well as gravity, there's the strong force and the weak force. These are the forces that actually take place at the atomic level. So we have gravitation, which, which affects everything. But at smaller levels, there are subtle differences. So when subatomic particles are around each other, they're never in contact themselves. So it's an illusion. People think that a table is made up of atoms that are all right in contact with each other. And there's a solid mass of atoms. And that's not the case. The atoms themselves, it's to do with valency, and it's how atoms attract other atoms, depending upon how many electrons they have in their shell. Now, obviously, if they have an even number of electrons and there's another atom that has an even number of electrons, they're going to repel each other. But if they have an odd number and another one has an even number, they're going to attract each other because overall it's negative or positive. So it means that certain atoms can come together to create molecules, which then, of course, then create the elements. So it's just more complex than that in terms of, of how it works. But we have to understand that the subatomic particles themselves, as I said, are mostly empty space. The atoms themselves are mostly empty space. But even the electrons are really tiny. So there's an equivalent to say that the nucleus is like at the middle of a big baseball stadium and the nucleus would be a tennis ball at the middle and the electrons would be grains of salt whizzing round the distance and the rest of it is empty space now on top of that you then have the problem that the electrons are known as point particles that means that however close you get into them they'll still be a point particle then you have the nucleus where all the real mass of the atom is which is the nucleus which is the proton and the neutron they themselves are not basic particles. They're made up of quarks. And depending upon whether there's an up quark or a down quark or everything, is, it depends on what the status of the subatomic particles are. But quarks themselves are point particles. So we're now getting into the point of exactly what these things really are. Then you have the mystery of size, because people think that you can go down into reality and go into smaller and smaller sizes, and eventually you will find the smallest possible size. Now, the smallest possible size is something called the Planck length or the Planck square. I read recently that it's analogous to, imagine the whole universe is an atom. The Planck square would be the equivalent of a tree on the earth to the whole size of the universe. That's how small the Planck length is. From the Planck length, there is nothing. So at that size, even space is not continual. There are gaps between it. So what is in those gaps? And this is where the mystery starts. For instance, people think, you know, the color red is out there. Red is nowhere. Red is a qualia. 
Red is something that your brain interprets a certain wavelength of electromagnetic radiation. It interprets as the color red, but there is no red out there. There is no blue. There's no green. There are no colors. These are what's called qualia. These are things that the brain takes the information and creates something internally and it internalizes a whole model of the world. Everything you're now seeing is created out of basically photons, which are particles of electromagnetic energy hitting your eye, going through your eye, and without going into detail, the photons themselves transfer energy. Each photon hits another photon, so it transfers energy, so they're not even the same photons. So when you look out of a window, the light that's coming the other side of the window is not the same light that's coming in through the window. It's very strange. So these photons, they go through your eye and they hit your retina, which is a tiny postage stamp inverted area of sensitivity. They then get converted into an electric signal, which then goes down the optic chiasma, the optic nerve, to the darkest part of the brain down here, where the processing takes place there. When it gets enough picture together or idea of these impulses, it then creates an image from the information it's been given. Now, the information it was given, remember, was on the retina. Now, the retina was postage stamp size, bent and inverted. But from that information field, the brain creates this three-dimensional visual field that surrounds you completely, and it creates that information. Now, the big point here, and it's so profoundly important, is that at the back of your eye, where the optic nerve leaves, there's something called a blind spot. You have a blind part, which you can do. If you close your eyes and you've got two dots on the screen, you bring them to, at one point, one of the dots will disappear. That's your blind spot. The brain fills in the information area it doesn't have around the blind spot. Now, I've argued that if it fills in that bit, it can fill in everything else. So when we have hallucinations, when somebody says that I saw a ghost, what is going on there? Because The brain is already creating internally a facsimile world that we think is the visual world outside. But sometimes it populates within that visual field anomalous things, hallucinations. Where do they come from? Where do dreams come from? Who is the bricoleur? Who is the person that is plotting your dreams for you? So there's this kind of inner narrative that sort of feeds out to the external world. And people who believe there's a one-to-one relationship between the external world and the things you receive through your eyes, through your ears, through your taste, through your touch, are called naive realists. This is the literal term that is used by people who study consciousness and perception, because they know that whatever is out there, it's not quite what we think it is. Nobody's arguing that there isn't an external reality out there, but that external reality itself is created by somebody observing it. Again, in quantum physics, there's something called the twin slit experiment. And we know from the twin slit experiment that subatomic particles, before they are measured, are literal waves of probability. They are statistical waves. They're not even a physical wave. Max Born came up with this idea, I think 1931. They are waves of probability. It's like a crime wave. It's not like a, a, a wave in water. And these waves are just waves of probability of the chance of a subatomic particle being found in one place rather than another. When they are measured, that probability wave collapses. It's called collapsing the wave function and collapses it into a point particle in one location or another. 
And of course, this is the basis of Schrodinger's cat. It's the basis of so many things. So again, when we think there is a physical world out there, not only are these subatomic particles incredibly strange and tiny, they're also dependent upon them being measured or perceived by a consciousness. So suddenly we have external reality suddenly is both a projection of ourselves and an internalized self. Now, you'd like this, that um, one of the stories I was dying to tell you this one because it is wonderful and particularly because your interest in Buddhism. A few years ago, I was going to go out shopping and an email turns up in my inbox and it's from a family living in Serpentine in Western Australia. And the, the email says the most extraordinary thing just happened. We were settling down or a few hours ago, a few extraordinary thing. We were settling down to have our lunch and there was a knock on the front door. They went to the front door and there was a Buddhist monk standing in the doorway in the doorway and he was holding a piece of paper with an email address on it and he turned around and he said i live i live in a monastery out in the outback i've walked here because i need you to email this gentleman with this email address and i'll come back next week and he can give me his address because i need to send him some material so the, the monk walks off goes down into the outback and the people are going what the hell was that they contact me and it's my email address so I'm puzzled. So what I do is, yeah, I send them back my, my address and everything. And a week or so later, two weeks later, I get a letter back. And it's from a guy called Ekigatu Bhikkhu, who is a monk in the Bona Hindu, Bona Hindu monastery in Serpentine. And he was a member of the Thai forest tradition, which are a very austere group of monks. And he told me and he said that your work, he said, I've read one of your, your paper, your academic paper. And he said, it's blown me away. He said that you have defined the science of Buddhism. He said, it's extraordinary. So anyway, we then start turning around and writing to each other regularly. So he turns around and he said, I'm coming over to the UK. I'm going to the, the Buddhist monastery near Rugby in the middle English Midlands. And he said, I'll be there for Buddha's birthday. Do you want to come to the monastery? So I meet him and he's an American. Not only is he an American, he used to be a roadie for the Grateful Dead. Okay. <laughs> Real cool dude. That's great. <laughs> really, really cool dude. And he chats to me and he said, you're not going to believe how I came across your paper. So I said, okay, how did you do it then? He said, well, we have huts out in the, in the, in the monastery. And he said, there's only about five or six of us monks and there's the, the main monk. And he said that we occasionally have our huts decorated. And we need to move to another hut, take a vacant hut. And he said, I go into this vacant hut. And he said, in the middle of the, the hut was a, a table and somebody had placed a piece of folded paper underneath because the table had a wonky leg. And he knew, I would argue, his daemon said, you need to read that piece of paper. And he said, I went over to the piece of paper, pulled it out. And it was your paper. Somebody had folded your paper up and left it in a hut in the outback in Australia. So he reads it. And that's why he became interested in my work. And this is where it gets so funny. I wrote a book a few years ago on near-death experiences with um, two consultant, Australian consultant psychiatrists. And one of them is a guy called Mahendra Pereira. And he and I decided that we'd write this book together when I was visiting Sri Lanka 
we decided to make this deal when right in the jungles of Sri Lanka in an eco hotel, we decided we met up. We thought we'll do this book together. We edited it and we all contributed chapters and it was nominated for the psychiatric book of the year, the British Medical Association. We didn't win, but we were highly acclaimed for it. So I meet him. He's over in the UK and I meet him for dinner one evening and we're chatting away. And I told him that story. And again, we talk about synchronicities. He goes, I think I know how that got there, that article. And I said, why? And he said, because I sent it. And I said, what? And he said, yes, the guy who runs that monastery is a quantum physicist. And he was a professor at Cambridge in quantum physics and became a Buddhist and set up that monastery. And he said, I knew him. So I sent him your paper. Now, the trick in the tale is, well, he must have been so impressed with the paper that he folded it up and used <laughs> to keep a chair leg straight right. or a, a table leg straight. But they're the kind of wonderful synchronicities that I just love. I just adore them, you know, and it happens all the time. Yeah, it's great. I love those, those things. Um, let's see. So based upon what you, well, one thing I want to, we're going to have to talk about the daemon. We'll get to that. And there was something from earlier where you talked about the fact that scientists are so keen on finding new particles that maybe they're bringing them into existence like the muon. And I wondered about that because it seems to me that muons must have been around since the beginning of the universe. And is it that we're anticipating new particles because we're on the brink of finding them rather than that we're creating them? But then also about how the world is definitely not what it appears to be to any of us, but there is some kind of intersubjective agreement. A bat and a cow and us might all see a tree and we're, we're all seeing something very different, but we all agree that there's something there. And so if it's consciousness or the mind or whatever that brings the world into existence, whose consciousness or whose mind? Because there is some kind of objective reality, even though our individual filters filter it all very differently. In the book, I have a concept which I call the Damon Adelon Dyad. And by the Damon Adelon Dyad, I mean that we all have, for want of a better term, a game player that guides us through life. It's literally somebody who's lived our life before, and we can touch upon that later. But for the moment, just bear in mind that we are dual beings, and we have within ourselves a part of us that is what the Gnostics would call the, the, the shard, something from the Pleroma, something that is greater than ourselves. And of course, all and just to put it in simpler terms for people who are listening, can we say higher self, lower self? As a yeah, we can. To- we say higher self, lower self. Yeah, it's Damon Adelon, because those names yeah. are unfamiliar to people. Yeah, okay. I, but you can I'm, use them now that we've defined them. The, the terms I'm using there are because they're, they're literal Gnostic terms. So right. they're, they're precise terms that the Gnostics use. But you can use lower self and higher self. Now, what I argue is that the daemon or the higher self is that your game player, it's somebody who's lived your life before, rather like Connors in Groundhog Day. Each day he uh, learns more. And I argue that we reincarnate in an equivalent of the Bardo state of the Tibetan Buddha of the dead. But I argue that in that period of time between death and either rebirth or whatever we want to call it, we can live a myriad of lives. And we do, I argue, and I do the science of how that can be. So we have the daemon or the higher self, which I'll, I'll use the daemon term because the terminology makes sense higher up. So what we have is we have the Edelon, the lower self that lives one life and dies. Then we have the daemon that lives multiple lives as you, many lives, and develops and grows over many lives and ultimately becomes a bodhisattva. 
just like Connors does in Groundhog Day. In Groundhog Day, you know, Connors initially starts off and he realizes he has an advantage over everybody else because he knows what happened the previous day and he carries the memory forward. He's like an embodied daemon rather than an Elon. So remember, he tries to bed the girl. He tries to do all the selfish things, but he finds that's not enough for him. So over a myriad of days, he also keeps getting slapped in the face because he (laughs) makes gross mistakes. (laughs) He does make mistakes. Funnily enough, I interviewed Danny Rubin, the guy that did Groundhog Day. And he told me that he's an academic at Harvard. And he said my first book he gave to all his mates and said, this guy's done the science of Groundhog Day, which was rather nice. He's such a funny guy. He's, He's incredibly funny. But anyway, so going back, as Connors lives the days over and over again, he then wants to educate himself. He's becoming a kind of a higher human being. And he wants to learn languages. He still wants to learn languages in order to impress the girl so he can better. He's still doing the same thing. He becomes a jazz pianist. He becomes a jazz pianist, doesn't he? Yeah. And then he uses his knowledge of the previous date to say, you know, you know, my favorite music is this. And of course, you'll go, how, God, how do you know that? Oh, you know, very clever. But then at the end, he's running around town doing good for good's sake, isn't he? He's, he, yeah, he's under- he does Heimlich maneuver on somebody who's choking and he knows exactly where to be and all that stuff. So what he's become is an advanced human being. He's become a bodhisattva. He's become the idea of somebody who, in Buddhist terms, would choose to go back into the Kali Chakra wheel to help somebody and go back and help other people. That's what I argue is what the daemon is. But I've then come to the conclusion that above the daemon is another entity, which I call the uber daemon. And the uber daemon is the collective unconscious of mankind. It's the Jungian collective unconscious. It's the memories of all humanity. It's probably carried in the DNA. I don't know, but it's the over self, you know, so there's the higher self then there's the over self. Then above that, there's a concept I call the godamon. And the godamon is the, from the Vedas, you know, the idea of Brahman. Yeah. The mind of Let me throw in a quote here. Don't lose your chain of thought. This, uh, this was from Marshim Yogi's commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. He said, Jiva, which I think was the Elan in your terminology, mm-hmm. is the individualized cosmic existence. It is the individual spirit within the body. With its limitations removed, Jiva is Atman, transcendent being. When the individuality of the Jiva and the universality of the transcendent self, the Atman, are united and found together on one level of life, then there is Brahman, the all-embracing cosmic life. The individual jiva in its essence is Atman. Does that jibe with what you're thinking? Totally, completely and utterly. In my new book, I have a whole section on that particular terminology. And I'm particularly fascinated by an even more interesting model, which is an adaption of that, which the Kashmiri Shaivists use as well, Mm. which is even more intriguing. So the idea that there is this kind of overconsciousness, which is, for want of a better term, the consciousness of everything. I contributed a chapter a few years ago to a book on uh, pandeism. Pan, pantheism? What did you say? No, pandeism. There's a pandeism, subtle difference. Panpsychism okay. is that the soul is in everything and everything's conscious. But pandeism is that everything is God. That's where I stake my claim. Absolutely. And I think the most succinct description of my worldview was made by the American comedian, Bill Hicks. Bill Hicks does this monologue, which you can check on YouTube because it's very famous. He's trying to juxtapose the silliness with the greatness. And he has a a guy doing a, a news program and he turns around and he said, breaking news, young man on acid discovers that matter is just energy slowed down to walking pace. 
and we are all one single consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. Now over to Bill for the weather. (laughs) It's very, very funny. And of course, that is true. You know, it's the idea that we are all one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. The idea that if you were a singular consciousness, what would you do in order to make yourself not be bored? You'd create your own soap opera. And you'd embody yourself in the soap opera and you would become individuated consciousnesses and you would forget that you're God. And one thing to throw in here is if you were all one consciousness at that fundamental level, then what is there to perceive? Nothing. You're the only thing down there, but you're conscious though. And so you've got to be conscious of something. So you automatically set up this self-referral dynamic. An observer, observed, and process of observation dynamics is set up. And so all of a sudden, from one, you have three, actually, or two, depending if you want to leave out the process of observation. But how can there be three? Because there's only one. And yet there's three, and there's one, and there's three, and there's one. So this infinite frequency gets set up, which creates this vast dynamism at the foundation of creation. And then from that dynamism, the whole thing arises in greater and greater complexification occurs and we have the whole catastrophe to quote Zorba the Greek. Because that's it, isn't it? You know, the idea that, and of course then that indirectly answers your other question because, you know, there was the very famous Bishop Barclay when Barclay was going on about his idealism and he argued that, that there is nothing other than the observer. And then the argument is, well, if I'm not in a wood and a tree falls, is there any sound? And of course there isn't because sound is just vibrations in the air, which we interpret. But so there's the answer to that. It's easy. But the idea is who is keeping the wave function working if I'm not there and there's no observers? Well, the counter argument is that the, the ultimate observer is God, the prima mobile, the first mover. And who kept the show running in the universe for billions of years before there could possibly be biological life. Correct. And it gets then more interesting because then it's the idea, well, you know, the observer is observing. And there's this very famous Roland Knox, who was a Catholic theologian, came up with this very wonderful poem. And I can't quote it, but it's the idea. How does the tree continue to be in the quad when I'm not there? And that's the first verse paraphrased. And the second verse is something along the lines. The tree continues to be because I'm always there as you're sincerely God. (laughs) so it's the idea that everything is thought everything is crystalline thought it's the idea that thought is manifest in physical reactions now the point you were making about the muon and the muon have been in existence since i don't know three hundred thousand years after the big bang or whenever muons first came into existence the argument there was brilliantly put forward by a guy called john archibald wheeler i actually saw him speak one time did you? Oh, yeah. wow. He was to. a mentor to a fellow whom I instructed in meditation when he was in high school. And then he was invited to a university here in my town where that fellow that I instructed is now the president. And, but this was like 35 years ago or something. Anyway, go ahead. All right. So Wheeler had a term called the participatory universe. And his argument was rather like taking the writings of people like Teilhard de Chardin. You know, the idea of we're moving forward to a singularity. There's this reason behind everything. And he said, collapsing the wave function when you do an experiment, but how do you explain the existence of quasars that were created 10 billion years ago? 
and we see them now. But of course, we're seeing them as they were 10 billion years ago, because it takes like 10 billion years to get to us. So that quasar may no longer be there, but we observe it down here. And he did an application of the twin slit experiment, a thought experiment where he was using something called gravitational lensing. And that's the idea that light bends, space is curved, is warped and curved by a large object like a galaxy. You know, this is Einsteinian physics. So the idea is that a light wave could be traveling towards the Earth and it comes across a galaxy and the light wave is bent around either side of the galaxy. We're seeing photos of that now with the oh, yeah, James they're called, Webb the, Telescope. Yeah, they're called Einstein crosses. They look like little pancakes that are all bloopy. <laughs> yeah, they're bent. And the first time they came across, it was quite intriguing because when they first started seeing quasars, they discovered they thought there's four quasars in like a cross. How can that be? And then they realized that the light, it was from one quasar and the light had bent round a galaxy or some dark matter or a black hole. And it had given the impression that there were four. So we know that gravitational lensing does happen. Now, what Archibald Wheeler said was, imagine if you use that light to a twin slit experiment and you put the two, the twin slits, it would mean that the act of observation of a scientist now brings into existence light that has existed for 10, 12 billion years, which means that there's something here that's different. Now, I'd argue, I wrote a book a few years ago called The Labyrinth of Time. And in that, I just focus in on time, what time actually is. And I I really genuinely believe that the big thing we are all missing out on here is time. Time is relative. Time dilates, time expands, in which case, when we're saying we're looking at something from 13, 12 billion years, billion light years ago, or billion years ago, that's relative to how time flows. Now, you remember in the book, I have this whole section on the relativity of time that they're discovering now in terms of even the location of stellar objects and galaxies to observers in slightly different locations in the universe will measure the location of the galaxy completely differently, even though it's the same galaxy. And this is all to do with how we perceive and how time flows and how time is warped by gravity. Because as we know, time and matter are the same thing. As you get towards the speed of light, objects expand. It's called the Lorentz contraction and the Lorentz expansion. So it means that Objects themselves don't even have a consistent shape because relativity changes their shape. As you get faster and faster towards the speed of light, time slows down. So at the point of the speed of light, there is no time. Now, what I then say to people is, accepting the fact that at the speed of light, there is no time, the light waves that you see and the photons that stimulate your visual field at the moment, as I said before, The photons hit your eye, hit your retina and create the image that you see. From the point of view of a photon, there is no time. Right. It got here from that quasar. Instantaneously. So from that point of view, there is no time. But also photons. Yeah, and there's no space because time and space are the same thing. I didn't mean matter, I meant time and space. So time and space are the same thing, which means that where does then space go? You know, so suddenly we've got this really weird worldview of what is really happening out there. 
Well, I guess maybe the question is, is one of those perspectives more valid in some way than another? Our perspective as a stationary object versus the photon's perspective going at the speed of light, who's right? Or both are both right, and it's a both-and kind of consideration. Well, that's where it gets even stranger, because as the reason Einstein came up with his idea of relativity was he wondered as a kid what it would be like to be traveling at the speed of light, looking at a, a light beam. Right. Would that just stop? And it wouldn't, because from the observer's point of view, light always travels at 186,000 miles per second, irrespective of whether it's going away from you or coming towards you. It always travels at 186,000 miles per second. Now, as I've argued in one of my books, so when a light beam leaves a light, it doesn't accelerate to 186,000 miles a second as the photons leave. They become 186,000 miles per second instantaneously. It's all they can do. It's all they can do. They can't go any slower. So it means how do they start and accelerate from their light source? Then we have the issue that the way in which light works and the way the universe works, there's some very strange anomalies like the Big Bang. For the first microseconds of the Big Bang, the universe expanded hundreds of times the speed of light. Now, we argue that light is the fastest thing that can possibly be, but the universe expanded thousands of times or hundreds of times the speed of light because it's literally... Space is expanding. Space is being created. And where is the space coming from? You know, space is space. Space is empty. You know, Ernst Mach, the the great German physicist, argued that if you had just two, and I think uh, Hegel argued this, was it Hegel, Schopenhauer? I can't remember. The idea that if you had just two planets in the universe surrounded by space, if one of the planets suddenly disappeared, would the space around it disappear? And it would just shrink to around that planet. Because space, by definition, is nothing. But we now know that space, far from being empty, is full of something called zero-point energy, the quantum vacuum. So suddenly, I mean, this recent announcement made about the way nuclear fission and nuclear fusion, or how we can have limitless energy, this is drawing energy up from where no energy should be. There seems to be this limitless field of energy. And is this energy part of a greater universe that we cannot perceive? that are measuring devices, the way we perceive things. In one of my books, I use the analogy. I call us electromagnetic chauvinists. And by this, I mean, and I I use the analogy in one of my books. I get great fun doing this. I said, and I did the calculation, and I said, imagine that the electromagnetic spectrum from gamma rays to radio waves is the length of the Mississippi River, which starts in a tiny lake in Minnesota, works its way down the center of the state's, and then comes out in the Gulf of Mexico. Now, if that was the electromagnetic spectrum, what we believe is the visual universe. Everything we believe is out there is an inch and a half, eight miles south of Hannibal, Missouri. And that's it. Which is not far from me, actually. So you're close (laughs) to the visual field. Yeah, I can see it. Like Sarah Palin, I can see Alaska from my porch. I mean, Russia. (laughs) (laughs) So the, the question then arises, you know, that, If that is the limit of what our perceptual fields are, there is so much out there we don't know. We know, for instance, you know, if if string theory is to be believed, the dimensions of space-time, there's more dimensions than four, the three spatial dimensions and time. There's more than that. There is the concept of the tesseract. You know, the idea is 
that in terms of geometry, you know, you have a point. And if you extend a point out, you have a line, which is one dimension. Then if you draw a right angle from that line, you end up with a square, don't you? And then if you draw a right angle from the four corners, you get a cube. But you don't have to stop there. You could then draw out from all of the nexus points to create what's called a tesseract or a hypercube, which is a square, both in time and in space. Now, if that is the case, and there's no reason why we should be restricted to just three or four dimensions, there could be greater dimensions. They think there's 10 or 12 if string theory is to be believed. So our perceptual, even our perceptual idea of space, science is telling us it's different. Most people out there, through no fault of their own, are stuck in the science of 125 years ago because the stuff that they discovered when Max Planck stood up and made his famous speech in Berlin in December 1900 and came up with the concept of quanta, that is, that energy is, is in little packets, the revolution started there. Then in 1905, Einstein comes over with his great year where he wrote three papers, all of which brought in some completely new ideas. Then 10 years later, he comes up with his general theory of relativity and suddenly everything changed. Then the 1920s, all these amazing things were being discovered into the 1930s. But most people still think the world works using clockwork is relational to the fact you have to be in contact with something to make it move. And the idea that Newtonian physics is everything. Newtonian physics only works at our size. Anything bigger, and you get the weird theories of cosmology, and anything smaller, you get quantum mechanics. And the three of them don't work. Not only that, but the maths that's used in cosmology and in relativity, which is big objects, doesn't work for quantum physics. So we have two completely conflicting structures in the same universe. Now, these are all things that modern scientists pretend aren't an issue. They pretend that they understand everything. They pretend that, as somebody said, I think it was Mitchelson in about 1894, when he was opening up a new place at the University of Chicago. And he said, we know everything now. All we need to do is fine tune to the fourth or fifth decimal point there's only three dark clouds on the horizon, but we'll sort them out. It was those three dark clouds that ended up changing everything. It was black body radiation, the ultraviolet catastrophe, and something called the photoelectric effect. And Einstein explained two of them, and Planck explained the other one, which changed everything. But 99% of humanity don't know that. For instance, the world's greatest discovery, in my opinion, took place in Paris in 1981, when a guy called Alain Aspect and another guy called Dalibard proved something called non-locality, proved that if you take two subatomic particles, you entangle them into the same quantum state, then you put them apart at great distances and you do something to one particle, the other one reacts instantaneously. And the distance could be opposite sides of the galaxy, galaxy yeah. which means there's no kind of 100,000 years for a signal to get across. It means instantaneously. Correct. No speed of light limitation. Which means at a deeper level of reality, everything is one. Yes. Everything is a unity. It's non-dual, you know, as I know you guys like it. You know, it's non-dual. There's no duality here. There's no spirit and body and physical. It's all the same thing. 
These are all emanations of a deeper reality, what, what Einstein called the hidden variables. But again, the American physicist David Bohm, you know, he had something called the implicate and explicate orders. And again, it's the same argument because Bohm was very intrigued by this concept of non-locality. And of course, sadly, it was Einstein that brought this all about by his EPR thought experiment in 1937, I think it was, the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen experiment. But it means that things are unity. And I think this is where I come with my model of the holographic universe and the idea that this is a hologram, that we are existing within an information field and it's holographic by in nature. And you probably know that one of the extraordinary things about a hologram is that parts contain the whole. And of course, this comes back to Buddhism again, doesn't it? You know, it's again the wisdom of the East, Buddhism, Vedanta. You know, there are things they were aware of. They were using different analogies. They were using the language of the time. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not being a new age woo-woo pointing out that there are parallels here. I'm not saying that the dancing Wu Wai Masters was correct. I'm not saying that the other books on this were correct. But you've got to take into account they were using analogies that they had to use in order. And was there a deeper knowledge here somewhere? So one key point from all that, there probably are many, but one thing that's foremost in my mind at the moment is that the more manifest things are, the more restricted they are. And the more fundamental we go, then the more it becomes a field of all possibilities. So what is it called? Complementarity must be happening at mm. a ultimately fundamental level or close to it in order for instantaneous influence to be possible. So your whole thing about the daemon and the edelon and the daemon possessing some sort of omniscience and prescience and so on suggests to me that the daemon or the higher self is a reality that is more fundamental than the gross material corporeal reality. And that at that level, a much greater degree of omniscience or prescience is normal. And we can strengthen our relationship with that level of life. Even though as manifest human beings, we don't have conscious access to omniscience, we can begin to gain the benefit that would be had were we to have that omniscience. And life can flow in such a way that totally unforeseeable circumstances come to our aid or, or play in our favor because we're in tune at a fundamental level, even though we don't know the details, with some level of life which in some way does know all the details and can work them out for us if mm. we're willing to cooperate and able to flow with it. Well, I think if my cheating the ferryman hypothesis is correct, and again, people turn around to me and say, do you believe it? It's not a question of belief. It's a question of what the information and my research concludes. And I very much use the analogy here that when I was developing the hypothesis, I felt rather like I was Schliemann when he was discovering Troy. Frederick Schliemann was a German archaeologist, and he knew about the ancient Greek legends about the wars and the siege of Troy. But at that time, it was, it was only a fiction. Nobody believed it actually happened historically. But he believed that he sensed that it had, there was a city of Troy and it had been besieged. So he invested a lot of money and time and effort in trying to discover where Troy was located. And from Homer, I think it was Homer, he managed to isolate what it was likely to be. And he thought it was going to be on the Turkish coastline in the northwest coastline of Turkey, south of uh, the Dardanelles. 
And he started digging at a hill called the Hill of Hisselik. And as soon as he started digging, the excavation started to discover a city. And then they found another city. And I think they found seven in the end, all built upon each other. And there was one of them that showed signs of burning, which meant there'd been a siege. So he effectively proved that this is where Troy was. And I felt that I was rather like that. When I was doing my research, I found that an awful lot of the information came to me. It was given to me. I'd need a book and it would suddenly be there for me. I'd need to be in contact with somebody, a researcher, and I'd find them. So I felt I was excavating. I wasn't looking for a theory. I wasn't looking for a model. I just wanted an understanding of what deja vu was and near-death experiences. But as I got more into it, I was thinking, no, that makes sense. And then that makes sense. And suddenly this picture started, and a little piece, and I put that there and that would fit, and then that would fit. And then suddenly I'd go off on a tangent and I'd be looking into cosmology. And then I'd bounce off and I'd be into neurology and neurochemicals, neurochemistry. And all of them just worked and the pieces came together. And at the end of the time, I had this complete hypothesis, which I call cheating the ferryman. And I argue that this model, and since then, that the model has developed rapidly. It's so wide and so deep, it terrifies me. The implications of this hypothesis are extraordinary, if only more people would listen. And again, I do the science. So when you read my books, everything is referenced back to academic papers. I very much work on the Marcello Trui concept of extraordinary claims need extraordinary proofs. I never say to my readers, accept what I'm saying. I say, make up your own mind. This is my interpretation of the facts. You go back and read the original papers and come back to me if you think my interpretation is wrong, if you think my interpretation of quantum mechanics is wrong, have I misunderstood Schrodinger's cat, these kind of things, you know, you know, Emma Everett's many worlds interpretation, am I right? Pauli's exclusion principle, am I right on that in the way I understand it? Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, these kind of things. So I allow my readers to feed back to me. And if a reader comes along and says, you're wrong about that, I'll go fine. It's not a problem to me. I'm not a believer in it. All I know is that it seems to make sense. So cheating the ferryman is the argument that at the point of death, we go in what Buddhists would argue is the Bardo state. And it's this kind of timeless place. Now, again, I wrote a book on J.B. Priestley, the English playwright, and he did a wonderful play called Johnson over Jordan, which was only performed four times, I think, in about 1939. But it's about the Bardo state. He'd read the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And he wanted to make a play based upon the Tibetan Book of the Dead. He was so advanced priestly. He was extraordinary. And I keep saying to people, you really need to read this guy's work. He was incredible. But anyway, so the idea is when you start to die, what happens is there are chemicals released in the brain, certain neurotransmitters. Initially, I thought it was glutamate, but I'm now concluding it's endogenous. That is internally generated dimethyltryptamine. And I think it's excreted by the pineal gland. I think the pineal gland synthesizes from melatonin something myself and my associates call metatonin, which is this substance that is is Rick Strassman, the guy that wrote the famous book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule. He's a professor at the University of New Mexico. He argued that DMT is our reality modulator. That's what it's attuned in, in some way. So I argue that as we start to die, these chemicals are released in the brain. What do they do? They act non-locally. So they they instantaneously cover the whole brain and they bring about a falling out of time. They bring about a sensation that time is dilating. 
And again, I do the physics of how time can dilate using Einstein and Minkowski and various other people. So time dilates. Now you have report after report in near-death experiences. It's one of the moody traits and it's one of the Grayson traits. It's something called the Moody, Bruce Grayson. And what it is, is effectively that time dilates in a near-death experience. It's one of the things people talk about. You know, time slows down as it does in car crashes and everything. But people, particularly people who have a sudden death, mountain climbers, Heim, I think he was Einstein's mathematics teacher, was a mountaineer. And he collected stories of people who had survived falling off the Alps. And all of them tell about time dilation. So this is chemicals released in the brain. But why does the brain do that? Well, then I use the next part of the moody traits, the panoramic life review, where people turn around and say, my life passed before my eyes. If you put the time dilation bit to the panoramic life review bit, and I think I'm the only writer that's done this, has said, right, put the two together. What do you get? You get a panoramic life review that happens in the right amount of time, subjective to you. So in which case, in a real death experience, your panoramic life review doesn't happen in an instant. It doesn't flash in front of your eyes. It's a literal minute by minute life that you live, minute by minute. And you you get catapulted back to the moment of your birth and you live your life again. And at the end of that life, in an even smaller piece of time, external public time is even smaller, but in your subjective time is still another lifetime and another one and another one. It's Groundhog Day, but it's a life. The Russian version of my book was called Groundhog Life, a chronicle of personal immortality. So you're in smaller bits of time, but this is the Bardo state. So you're in the Bardo state, but unlike the Bardo state, which says in the, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Evan, Evans Vents translation turns around and says, you know, that you see all these monstrous things and they're all terrible and they're all frightening, but they're all created by your subconscious. I argue it's more subtle than that. You live your life again within these states. And the information field that generates these reliving of your lives again are all different because they're all created holographically. They're all created from information. They're all created from the data field that holds the information of everything. And again, I do the physics of this. One of the last papers that Stephen Hawking wrote was with a, with a guy called uh, Thomas Hertog of CERN. And they came down with something they call the top-down hypothesis of quantum mechanics. And effectively what they argue is that from the moments of the Big Bang, every outcome of every Every subatomic action has a potential to exist. And the wave function is collapsed to follow that particular path. But all the paths are in potentiality and can be collapsed. This is Stephen Hawking, not Anthony Peake, not the guy down the pub. This is Stephen Hawking. There is then something called the transactional interpretation of quantum mechanics by a guy called John Kramer. And Kramer argues that there are two types of waves. There are advanced waves and retarded waves. And effectively, advanced waves are waves of energy or wave functions that are going forward in time, like we do. But there are also wave functions going backwards in time. So there are information going in the other direction. And I argue in my book that the present moment is literally the interaction of those two wave functions that are interacting and causing a hologram. Because, of course, that's what holograms are. You know, they're just light wave functions, causing an an interference pattern. So that means that the future in potentiality is all there. 
and the past in potentiality is all there. So as you move through this, every decision you make then collapses for you. So when you're in this dying state, you can live your life again. But like Connors does in Groundhog Day, he makes decisions that are different every day. He follows every path that he possibly can do. And I believe this is what we do in the final moments of life. We live a myriad of lives. We fulfill all our potentials. We follow all the patterns we can possibly do. And we learn. Each life, we learn more, like Connors does. We learn to be more human. We learn to be more advanced, to become a Buddha, in effect. Life after life after life as we do this. And we become more perfect. And then at the end of a myriad of lives, you then die. And then you move on to whatever it may be, reincarnation, whatever your belief system fulfills, maybe. So the argument here is that part of you, the part of you that survives life to life to life is your daemon. Your Eidolon dies. Your Eidolon is like an on-screen sprite in a computer game. It just exists for one game and it dies. But the daemon goes back to the start of the game with all the knowledge it had from the previous game and helps you go through this life. It's the voice in the head that warns you. It's the voice that says, this person is dangerous for you. Don't go near them. It's the voice in the head that says, don't go out today. Don't get on that plane because it's going to crash. And the communication channels depend how they're open depends upon what I call your position on the Huxleyan spectrum, how open your doors of perception are. And I wrote a book on this called Opening the Doors of Perception to do the neurological aspects of how the communication channels work. And I argue that people who have temporal lobe epilepsy, people that have um, migraine, classic migraine, people who have autism, people who have got Alzheimer's, the channels of communication are more open with the daemon which means the daemon can more manifest in their lives. And you might also include mystics and yogis. and Correct. That's what they do. The mystics and yogis train themselves. Without or, having to have epilepsy. So they can correct. Them, they yeah. can just do it. And of course, this is the thing, isn't it? All the mystical traditions are all to find the God within, to find your higher self, to commune with your higher self. This is what I'm saying. Your God within, your higher self is your daemon. It is you. And it is you that carries your memories forward. And this is why I think why I have issues with the standard interpretation of reincarnation. The standard interpretation is you die, all your memories are gone, and you're reborn as somebody else, which makes rational sense and everything else. But, but hold on, let me interject here, because I heard you say that in your book. You know, I've been at this game myself for 54 years and read a lot of books and thought a lot about things. And I don't understand that as the standard interpretation, but correct me if you feel I'm wrong. Yes, we're born without really remembering our past lives, although some children, before they get too old, can remember them. You supposedly. Know, yeah, supposedly. You know, Ian Stevenson. And with all due respect, I know people who knew Ian Stevenson. And, and Jim Tucker, his successor, who might be Jim Tucker as yeah. well. There's a lot of wishful thinking going on here. Okay. Um, but my understanding is that. It wouldn't really be valuable to remember all the details of your past lives. But in fact, it's like knowing all the answers to a test that you're going to take mm -hmm. in school or something. You don't study for the test and you don't learn as much as if you have to really study and confront the problems as they're shown to you. But nonetheless, we do evolve, just as you were saying, over successive lives and some deeper wisdom accumulates. And we're confronted with situations in life which 
might test us in ways that we failed the previous time. And now we have an opportunity to try them again and perhaps learn this time and grow. And the whole thing is to move toward higher and higher levels of consciousness. And if you're saying that it's not that each human lifetime or whatever life form we take on is a Groundhog Day repetition of the previous one. You and I might have been women last time. We might have been born in China or Africa or someplace else. So our external circumstances may be very different, but somehow the sum total of evolutionary development that we have attained in a previous life or in all of our previous lives up until now, uh, we we start out, we, we pre- resume or we we start where that left off, you know, and we continue it hopefully from here. So how is that different from what you're saying or isn't it? Well, I suppose for me, I've always had a soft spot for reincarnation. I always think that for (laughs) me, intellectually, it's the most satisfying alternative to life after death, you know? So let me start with, you know, I'm somebody that's on the team, but I think my problems have been over the years, you know, and I've read extensively about reincarnation. I've read the Ian Stevenson books. I've read Tucker. I've, I've read a lot of books on the subject. And I feel there are certain logistical issues that I can't get over in my own mind. Now, the first one is that if reincarnation is a standard factor of life, why is reincarnation so different in different cultures? And people turn around and say, oh, no, reincarnation is the same in all cultures. No, it's not. If you look at what the Druze believe in terms of reincarnation to the Tlingit Indians in or the Tlingit Native Americans in the Pacific Northwest, to the Buddhists, they all have very different interpretations of what happens after you die. Either you're born immediately after you die or you're born weeks after or months after. You're either born in the same tribe or you're not born in the same tribe. These are all things that, to me, suggest that there's a cultural bias to this. I'm sure there's a cultural bias, and all the things you just said might be possibilities. In fact, in the Vedic perspective, you might be born really quickly, or as it says in the Gita, you might ascend to some heavenly realm and live there for a long lapse of time and then be reborn. So there's all kinds of possibilities. Yeah, in which case then that would be, well, why don't you remember being in the higher realm? Maybe some do. Maybe they do. It's possible, but then I have the issue of the actual science of how something that is processed in the brain then transfers to something else. Who makes the choice? Because like a computer, there's a lot of stuff happening on my computer. But if I buy a new computer, then maybe I put everything on my computer into the cloud and then download it to the new computer. And even now, maybe we're uploading constantly to the cloud, you know, like a backup system. And it's not just stored in the brain. And it's easily transferable to another another meat puppet. But there's a question there of agency. I mean, you quite rightly say that, you know, you buy a new computer, you then upload everything to the cloud, and then you download it to your new computer. So when I die, who or what is uploading everything that's me? And what is deciding which computer to then download my information to? I could give you some speculative responses to that if you want, or you could keep going. No, no, no. I'm genuinely interested. Have you ever read Michael Newton's books? Michael Newton? Yeah, I know of Michael Newton, yeah. Yeah, so Life Between Lives, and he hypnotized a gazillion people. And there was a lot of 
agreement among his subjects as to the topography of the other side, so to speak. And, you know, it involves some kinds of guides or beings or whatever who help us assess how we did this last time and help us figure out what we want to do next time in order to have the optimum learning experience and all that business. But again, the description of the other side is not consistent. It is in his books anyway. But again, maybe there are multiple other sides. I mean, according to Vedanta, there are seven hells and seven heavens. And, uh, you know, each of those is is quite different. This is the problem I have. I guess I'm too rational and too grounded in science. I want to know the process just because people are hypnotized. You know, we know hypnotism. I work with professional hypnotists. Yeah. They have told me that people will fulfill what the hypnotist wants you to say. Well, I think he might have been careful not to suggest a whole lot. But let me grant you the appreciation for your rationality and scientific nature. But as I said an hour ago, I think that science may have to really evolve a lot to understand what's really going on. And I'm not dogmatically arguing this is the way it is, and science is stupid if it doesn't get it. I'm just saying there's a lot of merit yeah. in, in this kind of hypothesis. So let's well, not just what toss I've it been out. saying the whole time, isn't it? Yeah. You know, that science is nowhere near understanding exactly right. what's going on. I suppose I just have a great feeling of ill at easeness about the New Age movement and some of the self-evident nonsense that's oh me too (laughs) believe me i get exposed Um, to a lot of it you should see some of the people who apply to be interviewed (laughs) i can imagine i always want to keep my rational hat on as best i can but i can sympathize and i can see how one could interpret these things and it's always my heart and my head with me i what my heart wants to believe and what my head allows me to believe two different things But I think that the idea that we live our lives over and over again in my model, but then at the end of that life, we move on to whatever your belief system is almost, you know, because if we're creating this phaneron, as Pierce said, you know, the idea that there's much more of a symbiotic relationship between us and the external world is that we're all progressing in some way. And there are different routes. There's the famous statement, isn't it? You know, there's many paths up the mountain, but the view from the top is still the same. And I read books on reincarnation and I read books on hypnotic regression. For instance, the vast majority of Stevenson's cases were people of lower class, lower caste claiming to be upper class. There were very few cases that went the other way. Just to me, there's a pecuniary issue here. Yeah, you're right about that one. You know, everybody was Joan of Arc, or which I want to talk about with you. Yeah. Joan of Arc, you have a great thing about her in your book. Or everybody was Cleopatra or whatever. And who was the janitor? You know, there weren't enough <laughs> yeah, exactly. janitors back then. But this thing about getting to experience whatever we anticipate after we die, my sense is that maybe that's the initial, maybe that's the waiting room where you, you know, the Hindus get to see Krishna and the, the Jews get to see Moses and the Christians get to see Jesus yeah. and so on. But then after a while, what if reincarnation really is a thing? And after a while, is okay, folks, they didn't teach you this in church, but everybody reincarnates. And so get in line. Here's your next gig. In that matter, I'm always reminded of, do you remember the science fiction writer, Philip Jose Farmer? Oh, he wrote a wonderful series of books called The River World. And that is basically, you die and you find yourself being reborn, totally naked, at 25 years of age on a riverbank. And there's this planet, there's a river that runs all the way around the planet from the North Pole to the South Pole. And all the way along the river, there is 20% from one civilization or one period of time and 20% of another. And they all intermingle. And it's brilliant. It is superb. 
Now, as I understand it, Jose Farmer was either a more, I think he was a Mormon or from a background of that possibly, but it's a wonderful idea. Again, the idea that we die, but we're all born as 25 year olds and we grow our hair back and so we I don't have to do high school again. Hey, that's great. It would, wouldn't it? Get all the things right that we got wrong last time. I mean, that's what cheating the ferryman tries to yeah. do. Of course, you get arrested right away because you're standing naked by a river. But everybody else is, so you're oh, okay. Oh, they are too. The okay. Even the cops are naked. Cops. <laughs> you might find an interview that I did with a father, Thomas Castle. I think his first name was Thomas. His last name was Castle. He somehow stumbled upon this ability to help stuck souls move on. And it first happened when he had some kind of vision or dream of this guy sitting on the edge of a car and then the car bursting into flames and the guy died of the fire. And there apparently was an actual guy who had had that accident and he found himself in touch with this person on the other side who was stuck in some kind of antechamber or something and couldn't move on and was all resentful and bummed out and everything. And then he goes through dozens of these stories in his book. But in every case, somehow through his help and intervention serving as that function, they get to a point where they're ready to move on. And then inevitably, somebody shows up who is their guide or their usher to take them on to the next place they need to go to. But throw that into your stew of ideas. and see. I've heard that so many times. People tell me, you know, that people get stuck. And there's a lot of friends of mine. I work very closely with mediums. I work very closely again with past life regressionists. So I do invest the time in following up on these things. And this trapped soul bit is a really interesting one on the concept of soul rescue and the idea you don't know you're dead. And again, it's it's coming back to the Bardo state again, isn't it? And again, in Johnson over Jordan, that's the problem with the central character. When the play starts, it's a funeral and there's people around at the funeral. And there's this guy wandering around on the stage that nobody's reacting to. And it's the guy whose funeral it is. And of course, he flashes back to his past and everything else as well. And in the end, he's allowed to move on. Extraordinary. And the ending of the play was cost a lot of money, apparently. And it was really Ralph Richardson took off the role. Really, really good. It's only been done, I think, once. I'm a member of the J.B. Priestley Society, and one of the masters of Bradford Grammar School told me that they did a production of it. The school did a production of it around about 10 years ago, but really, really interesting. But it's an interesting idea that one could die abruptly or in some traumatic way where they don't realize they're dead or they are dead, but they're they're clinging to the world they just left and, and refuse to move on. And Who knows? It seems to me it fits into my whole concept of how it all works. But as we've been saying, that's subject to revision. It seems to make sense to me. Okay. I'm talking more than I was earlier in the interview and kind of bouncing things off you a little bit. That's the whole point of the interview. Sometimes I talk too much. But anyway, you've been saying such great stuff. I just wanted to listen. Where should we go from here? Well, you mentioned Joan of all. Before you tell that story, I just want to preface it by saying I'm fascinated by how some people seem to have a mission in life. And it seems that there's, from my perspective, again, subject to revision, there seems to be some kind of higher being or higher knowledge, which may be your daemon or maybe something else, which wants them to do a certain thing and knows they're capable of it. And it's not only people like her, but like Steven Spielberg, some of the movies he's made. It's like we needed to have the knowledge of extraterrestrials or something introduced into the society more than it had been. And so he's inspired to make a movie, but it wasn't just his brain. It was him being a instrument of some higher 
knowledge or being or wisdom or something that wants to channel itself into human consciousness. Or even people like Einstein and other scientists who come up with these brilliant ideas out of nowhere, apparently. It's time for that idea to come to humanity and somebody's got to do it. So this guy here seems to have the capability. Let's light a fire under him and give him the idea to propagate. Yeah, well, it's very much the subject I discussed in my second book, The Daemon, A Guide to Your Extraordinary Secret Self, Yeah, because the, the number of people that approached me to say that they had been guided through their lives by something else. And I'm particularly reminded of a person that, again, you need to interview because he's extraordinary. There's a guy called Myron Dial, who is an artist based in California, in Los Angeles. D-I-A-L? Uh, M-Y-R-A-L-D-Y-A. Double L, Myron Dial. Myron approached me. It's quite an extraordinary story again. I received an email from him, but it wasn't from him. And the email read something along the lines of, this is the most extraordinary email you're ever likely to receive. This first time that you'll have communicated directly with a daemon, because I'm the daemon of somebody called Myron Dial, and my name is Caron, and I've been with him all his life, and I'm opening up communication with you. And then Myron then contacted me. And it's extraordinary. His daemon manifested itself when he was four years of age. And he has been a bicameral personality, to use the term of Julian James, ever since. And this entity guides him. It takes him to other places. It is his spiritual guide. Does he go into some trance state and doesn't even know what's happening? He's temporal lobe epileptic. There was, again, so the temporal lobe epilepsy was very much an element but there was various cases where he's also a modern-day shaman. He, he's had the whole trip where his body's been dismembered and been put back together again. But he's also an extraordinary artist. He's almost like, do you know Geiger, the artist that did uh, Aliens, the alien? No. I mean, okay. I know the film, but I don't know the Okay, alien. he was the artist that did the designs of the alien, the alien entity. He also did the cover of Brain Salad Surgery, the Emerson, Lake and Palmer cover but myron's paintings and his sculptures are like that they are extremely disturbing they're very very scary and these are all imagery that he brings back from the places he goes when he's in his aura states it's quite incredible and he said he's been guided and there was one occasion he told me whereby his younger self he saw an older man at that time he wasn't an artist or anything but he saw an older man in a studio surrounded by these sculptures. And then 40 years later, he's sitting there and he recognizes where he was and realized he was probably, his younger self was standing behind him, looking at him. Hmm. Now, again, Philip K. Dick had exactly the same things happen to him. He had a series of dreams when he was a youngster about an older man standing at the end of his bed, looking at him. And then when he got into his 40s, he started having dreams of standing at the end of a bed, looking down as a young boy in a bed. Interesting. His younger self. And again, I argue that Philip K. Dick, if you read a lot of his novels, his daemon was very much manifest in his life. He argued that he was a split personality, that there were all these things happening. So it seems that this creativity comes through. And I'll give an example here of just how extraordinary it can be. Rudyard Kipling, the British writer, Come poet and everything else. He had a very active daemon. And in his autobiography, Something of Me, he describes this. And he turns around and he advises his readers to listen to the daemon and listen to what the daemon says. And he gave an example. 
And he said one day he was writing a story called The Old Men of Pevensey. And it was based on in Pevensey in East Sussex. And it was during the invasions, the invasions, the Norman invasions in 1066. And in the story, the fictional story, he's placed two elderly men, the old men of Pevensey in Pevensey Castle. And he's placed them inside one of the turrets of the castle. And they can't get out. They're trapped because all the Norman troops are all around outside. And like many writers, he'd written himself into an impasse. He didn't know how to get them out the castle. So he goes walking in his gardens in Bateman's beautiful house, not far from here. And he's walking in the gardens and the daemon comes to him. And the daemon turns around to him and says, do you know that story you're writing? I've got a way you can have a solution. And he turned around to the daemon and he said, well, there's a voice in his head. And the voice said, make out that they find some loose stones and they take the stones out or the bricks and they found there's a sea well in the lining of the tower and they climb down and there's a boat there and they can go into the moat and they can escape. Kipling turns around to his daemon and said, yeah, but that's ridiculous. There isn't one. And the daemon said, well, write it anyway. So he did. He wrote it. Ten years later, there was excavations done in the actual tower that he chose and they found the sea well. Oh. Exactly in the location he said it would be. And as he says in his autobiography, he says, what was going on there? Was that my future self talking to me to help me guide me, write a book, write a story? And he gave very much other examples. And again, you have then people like Kekul, who was a German chemist who was having great problems with benzene, the atomic structure of benzene, how the atoms linked in benzene. And he's sitting there and there's a roaring fire and he's sitting there and he starts to go off to sleep. And as he does so, he sees a snake chewing its own tail and spinning. And he comes to and he goes, that's how the ring structure works. And he was right. The ring structure of benzene was discovered. The same with Niels Bohr. He couldn't understand how the atom, the structure of the atom worked. And he had a dream of racehorses running round a circular track. And he woke up and, yep. That was the structure. That's what he needed. So it seems that we have this kind of guide to us that manifests in the right time and makes things happen to seem to move us on. And I argue it's using future memory. It already knows what you've done and it, it back feeds the information to help you make the right decisions this time or to create the things you need. And again, citing the TV series, Dark, That's well worth watching because it points out about free will and are we trapped in doing the same things? Can we escape from free will? Because it's become a a very clever time travel story, very sophisticated. But it's again the idea, you know, that we can go back into our own past and guide ourselves, but will we make the same errors? Which is exactly what Joan of Arc, in Joan of Arc, I wrote a play on it called The Voice because, you know, Joan of Arc argued that she had spirit guides and they guided her and they guided her right from the start of her career when she was fighting the British. But she refused to follow the guidance at one stage because she tried to escape from a a tower and the guide said, don't do it. But she didn't. She jumped and she broke her leg and she was recaptured. And that's what her ended up being burned at the stake. But the voices very much told her what she needed to do. And I'd argue, again, that the voices were her own 
higher self that had lived the life before guiding her to say, whatever you do, don't make this mistake this time. Don't jump from the tower. And of course she did. And the voice said, oh, well, sod you then. You've made the mistake again. Let's get it right next time. (laughs) And of course, this whole principle is central to a comparatively famous novel written by a guy called Peter Ospensky, who was a Russian philosopher. Student of Gurdjieff or something. That's right. He was the associate of Gurdjieff and they split up later in life, but he was very much his Gurdjieff's acolyte. Ospensky wrote a novel called The Strange Life of Ivan Osokin. And again, it's a young man who loses his girlfriend and then is given the opportunity to go back and relive the last 10 years of his life. And he makes the same mistakes as he made last time, exactly the same mistakes. And it's almost as if those of us who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And it does seem that sometimes the daemon gets quite hacked off with us because we don't follow what they're supposed to do. A couple of thoughts on this. I listened to your whole Cheating the Fairman book and half of the Damon book over the last couple of weeks. And the sticking point that keeps coming to mind when I hear you describe the Damon is that I think, okay, it may be this way. It may be some kind of higher self that knows our future and is not bound by time the way our Jiva is, our Adelon. But I also very much believe in the idea of celestial beings or subtle beings who are not human at all and who operate on subtler levels and intervene or involve themselves in human affairs, attempting to guide individuals and cultures this way and that. And maybe on some level, those two things are synonymous, but I have friends who claim to be able to see people's guardian angels hovering around them doing something, who knows what. And that kind of idea, like you said, Joan of Arc believed in her spirit guides, that kind of idea is common in in various cultures. So just a hypothesis that I think we should keep in the mix. We we shouldn't exclude it. For instance, you know, I I know from my own research, you know, some curious stories like the skull experiment. And I know people who were physically there who witnessed the phenomenon, you know, of that. No, I don't. Okay. It was a series of experiments done trying to communicate with other beings be it dead people or whatever that place in, I think, the 1990s in a small village called Skoll in in Norfolk in the UK. I've interviewed David Spangler, by the way, who was one of the founders of Findhorn, and a lot of people associated Uh with that have been doing this kind of thing for a long time. Yeah, I've got a friend who lives in Findhorn, and I I keep meaning to, to go up to visit her, actually. I mean, she's an extraordinary lady in her own right. But the whole Skoll experiment was quite interesting because they got communication with something or a group of some things, And they got some quite interesting information. And friends of mine, two people I know, witnessed the visual effects that were taking place in that cellar of that house. And they assure me that what they saw was impossible. They couldn't have reproduced the things they did. And these were individual entities that were not daemons. They were personalities. And the same goes with Imperator and Rector, which were a series of experiments very similar that were done in the 1890s, I think it was, by the Society for Psychical Research. And again, they had communication with other entities. And again, I argue, you know, there are these egregores that I was talking about earlier on, you know, these entities that seem to come through to either guide us or play with us. Is it they're trying to help? And of course, we then move into the UFO phenomenon. And yeah, which is a whole other... Yeah, I would also argue that there would be hierarchies of entities. There could be little ones like 
that were properly represented as being fairies or elves or whatever that might be involved in or responsible for plant life or something like that. And then bigger ones that might be associated with our individual life. And then ones that might govern a whole planet or galaxy or whatever. And then others that might govern or be the intelligence that expresses itself as various laws of nature or natural phenomenon and so on. And I'm not coming up with these ideas. I mean, this is what people have said, and I kind of find it interesting to contemplate. So do I. I mean, this is the thing that the more you get into this, the more it becomes fascinating. And the people you meet, this is the wonderful thing about I find doing my writing is the people I've met over the last two decades have become really good friends of mine. And we all share the same interests. I mean, I'm really quite fascinated, for instance, about DMT entities. What do they call them? Machine elves or something like that? Oh, totally. I mean, for instance, there are a couple of my associates, one particularly, who is one of the researchers that are doing the research at the Imperial College in London at the moment about DMT entities and the things he's been experiencing. Yeah. Is the drug just producing those out of nothing? Or is the drug sort of tuning us into a realm at which they actually exist? Well, in my book, The Infinite Universe, I argue that it is a tuning us in these entities. For instance, um, my associate told me that he took the DMT intravenously, found himself in a place, an entity comes over to him, tells him you shouldn't be doing it this way, tells him off. He then comes back into this reality goes back two weeks later, the same entity came over and said, I told you last time, you shouldn't be doing it this way. And this shocked him because as he said to me, he said, this was something, if it was a part of my own psyche, it was telling me something I didn't want to hear. And he said, I am absolutely sure that this entity was independent of me. It wasn't a creation of my subconscious. And other friends of mine who've taken five MEO DMT tell me that when you do that, it's even more extreme because you then move into almost Brahman state you know, you actually become unity with everything. And again, the argument is, why do these substances exist? Why does DMT exist in virtually everything? It's in plants. What is it created for? Yeah. Why has it come about that it can work psychoactively with the human brain in the way it does, unless there's some kind of a plan? I have friends who feel, and I may agree with them, that these substances have already played and may yet play a a very great role in transforming the consciousness of humanity in an accelerated way, which might not happen if we just needed everybody to learn to meditate or something like that. I think, again, you know, from the Veda traditions and the concept of Soma, again, it goes right back into the traditions. I feel that scientists and a lot of the, the researchers don't think far enough or they don't realize the real impact of what they're analyzing. For me, okay, so these drugs create hallucinations, but we don't know what hallucinations are. So we do a causality and we make an explanation by giving it a label. In other words, we call it an hallucination and therefore we've explained it. But of course, as the great Oliver Sacks in his very last book, Hallucinations, where he particularly talks about such things as Charles Bonnet syndrome, he argues that we have no idea what hallucinations are. And I've used the argument to say that, you know, if I have an hallucination, that's me hallucinating. If you and I collectively have an hallucination and see something in three-dimensional space outside of ourselves, it's a folie deux. What does that French word mean? Folie deux, it means fool of two, a folly of two. In other words, we're both fooling each other. 
were concurrently fooling each other into seeing something external. Then you have collective hysteria. Well, you have things like the the Lord's phenomenon or the Phoenix lights or, you know, various things. That's the specific example. These Lourdes and Fatima, you know, when thousands of people saw the sun spin in the sky. Now, something happened there. To just say it was a collective hallucination suggests that you're using potentially telepathy to explain something you don't like. So you're using something you don't like to explain something you don't like even more. Yeah. And that's bad science. Come on. Yeah. You know, for crying out loud, you know, you don't, don't think we see the card trick going on there and the slate of hand. So to me, what are these hallucinations? Where do they come from? Why are they consistent? Why do people see greys? Why did my mother see a grey in her bedroom when she was developing Alzheimer's and Charles Bonnet syndrome, which she did. She described it as a little grey being with huge black eyes, a slit for a mouth and two holes for a nose. And it came round the door in the bedroom, looked at her, blinked and dodged back again. And she'd seen a UFO about three days before that she didn't know was a UFO. She said she saw something in the sky. And she was developing Alzheimer's, you said. She was developing Alzheimer's yeah. and she was developing Charles Which, which doesn't necessarily mean she was totally losing it. I had a friend, she's died, but she had early onset dementia, I guess you would call it. She deteriorated and became really vegetative, even in her, might've been late fifties or early sixties. But as that began to happen, she began just having this incredible love for people and feeling like she could see auras around people. Something began opening up, which her deteriorating brain perhaps was not producing as a hallucination, but rather was losing its filtering ability to prevent such things from happening, just as psychedelics are said to do. That's what I argue. And again, being me, I do the neurophysiology of it. What is taking place there is there are things called amyloid plaques. And what they do is they're proteins that literally destroy the microtubules within the brain. They explode the microtubules. Now, the microtubules are interesting in that they are the central thesis of something called orchestrated objective reduction, which is being put forward by Stuart Hammerhoff and Roger Penrose. They argue that these microstructures, these tubulin structures within the microtubules of the neurons are the things that bring up the information field that create this reality. Now, when they get destroyed, what I argue is that the filtering, what Henri Bergson used to call the brain attenuator, the brain attenuates, it takes information out. It stops the brain's ability to attenuate, which means that suddenly the person, as they're declining into Alzheimer's, their perceptual field gets wider and they start to see things that we can't see. And I've got so much evidence of this. Again, Maggie Latorell, who's the lady that is at at Findhorn at the moment, she wrote a book called The Gift of Alzheimer's. And I quote her in one of my books. She's a good friend of mine. She describes about her mother's deterioration and her mother was precognitive. She was seeing things she couldn't possibly know, but her brain was going. And I think what happens is the doors of perception, the Blake doors of perception, the idea, you know, of um, Aldous Huxley, they start to break down. And I witnessed this in my mother, you know, where she suddenly started seeing things that weren't there. I mean, one day I'm sitting there and she turns around to me and she says, Tony, the little children that sing to me, they've stopped singing. They don't sing to me anymore. And I said, what children? And she said, oh, they follow me around when I'm shopping and they follow me around in the house. 
And I said, oh, dear. And I thought, is she letting kids into the house? And then she said, but they're not as friendly as the old man in the kitchen. And I went, what? And she said, yeah, he smiles at me. He never speaks, but he's very friendly. And this was when I realised what was happening because she was partially sighted. She'd lost an eye with malignant melanoma about 15 years before, and she had cataracts in the other eye. So it's a classic Charles Bonnet syndrome scenario because this is what happens when you start to go blind. The brain starts to bring in other information. Now, again, somebody you might be interested in interviewing is a friend of mine, Dr. Neil Rushton, who is an archaeologist, and he is going blind. And he gets profound Charles Bonnet syndrome. He sees things everywhere. He sees entities. He sees fairies. He sees goblins. They're all around him all the time. Incidentally, the other night I watched a documentary about people who see without eyes. And they can train people to do this. It showed kids with blindfolds on that were really good blindfolds. They weren't peeking, playing ping pong, riding a bicycle through an obstacle course, sorting out colored plastic cups into groups of the same color. A guy who could read a newspaper and tell you what the pictures are in it. He had trouble with small fonts, but he could do headlines and all. Who was blind? So anyway, it relates to what we're saying. Oh, totally. I mean, there's, there's an associate of mine whose, whose name has escaped me for a second. I'll remember in a second. She's a neurologist based somewhere in the States. But she's working with children who have profound autism, who are profoundly telepathic. And she gave me one example, one of her cases, and this is extraordinary. And this happened under control conditions. This kid was in India and the mother, who was a mathematician, believed that her daughter was a mathematical genius because the, how she could answer mathematical questions she asked her, even though she hadn't been trained in mathematics. So she contacts a guy called Daryl Trefford who, again, I've featured on my podcast, and Daryl died sadly about two years ago, but Daryl was the technical advisor for Rain Man, the movie. Oh, yeah, I was just going to mention Rain Man. And he worked with Kim Peek for years. So he was the guy that everybody, Kim Peek and how amazing Kim Peek was, who was the guy that Rain Man was based upon. He lived in Salt Lake City, Utah. Yes, he did. Uh-huh. But anyway, what happened was the lady in India contacted Daryl, and Daryl felt he needed to contact this other researcher, this lady friend of mine. And they brought the kid over and they tested her at the university. And they discovered, yeah, the kid was very good mathematically. So they could give the kid any kind of mathematical equation and the kid could answer it. So they'd have a mathematician working with the kid. The mathematician would ask what the equation was and the kid would get the answer. As they were doing some of the tests, one of the graduate mathematicians that was working there got bored. And I think I'm right in saying that what she did was she thought the question in binary code rather than normal decimal notation. Yes, so zeros and ones. Now, the child doesn't speak, but used a keyboard and the kid typed one zero one zero one 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 or whatever it was onto the keyboard. And the person that was doing the experiment said, how did they know that? They picked up my thoughts. And then she turned around. She said, if you are reading my thoughts, type. I love you in German. And the kid typed Ich liebe dich. And the kid and they didn't realized, speak German. And, uh, correct. Right. Right. And they realized that the child wasn't a mathematical savant. He was just telepathic. The child was picking up her mother's thoughts and they were yeah. picking up everybody. Diane Hennessy Powell is the lady. Oh, yes. I've interviewed her. Ah, okay. Diane. Yeah. Okay. And that's amazing enough in itself that all those things can happen. 
And, so what's the you know, and, and again, it, it should really shake the worldview of, of a materialist and if they were care to look at it. But what they do is because their science can't explain it, therefore it's impossible. And right. that's the logic. You know, yeah, my I mean, science, people you compromise my Raiden, science. He said, I, you know, I don't want to look at your research because it can't be true. So yes. go away. Daryl Bem, the work he did, you know, then right. the yeah. idea is we don't look at your results because we don't agree with them. Which, which is why we have the so-called Galileo Commission, which I think you're part of, or you're on the mailing list or something. It's part of the I, I know, scientific I know and medical network. It's so important. We're throwing things out that could really help science develop. And I find it quite frustrating because I know myself and my associates, we feel like we're on a bridge. We're in the middle of the bridge. And the scientists are throwing stones at us from one side. And the new ages who want to believe all kinds of nonsense are throwing stones from the other. (laughs) And we're dodging the stones and saying, look, guys, we're just trying to make you lot think more logically and you lot to think and say you're denying things that you're going to regret because sooner or later it's going to come out and you are in denial of it. I'm so happy you mentioned that point. And we kind of mentioned it in the beginning also, but that's been one of my main things is that science and spirituality can really help each other. Science can bitch slap the New Agers into more sensibility and the woo-woo stuff, a lot of it is true and science has got to look at it or it's not science. It's going to have a limited worldview. Well, we Um, know, don't we? I know I've had precognitive dreams. I know I've had precognitive deja vu sensations. I know people who have had, I've witnessed somebody have a precognitive deja vu sensation. It was somebody who contacted me who had 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 part of her brain removed for temporal lobe epilepsy. And we arranged to meet. What happened was I was living in Liverpool at the time and she and her son traveled into the center of Liverpool and she left her son in the center of Liverpool and got the bus out to where I was working, a place called Speak near the Speak Airport, about six or seven miles out of the city centre. We met in a border store, bookstore. Now, the border store, a particular border store in question, had the floor with all the books down in one level. And then there was a mezzanine floor at the back that had a Costa's coffee shop. I met her in the coffee shop. So you'd imagine the scenario. She and I are sitting there overlooking the shop and there's the entrance in the front. We're six miles outside of the city. Her son should be in the city centre. So she's talking to me and suddenly she goes into a, an absence state, a petty mal absence state where she just stares at me. And I knew for a second she was just going into a pre-seizure state and I didn't bother her. And she just suddenly looks round and she looks round at the front of the shop and she goes, he shouldn't be here. What's he doing here? He shouldn't be here now. And then she snaps out of it. And I'm just about to say to her that you've just had an absence seizure. When she looks at me, looks over, and goes, he shouldn't be here. What's he doing here? He shouldn't be here. As her son walked in through the front door. Uh-huh. I so witnessed she just, that. She just saw it happening a few seconds yeah, before it did. A few seconds yeah. before. Okay, well, this is great. I could easily talk to you all day long, but then you will miss dinner. There's a couple of questions that came in. Let me just ask those. This is from Sarah McDougall in Maine, the state of Maine. Several years ago, I had a terrifying experience during sleep paralysis. A faceless figure dressed in a black cloak appeared. A tremendous amount of fear and darkness overwhelmed me. I came across a documentary and realized this was an actual phenomenon regarding shadow people or the hat man. Do you have any knowledge or understanding of this experience and what it might mean? I do indeed. Sleep paralysis is fascinating. Just very quickly, what happens in sleep paralysis is when you're dreaming, if your body could move properly and you were having a dream and having a fight, you'd end up damage yourself by fighting and pushing and punching or damage or hurt somebody that's sleeping next to you. So what the body does 
is that it paralyzes the limbs so you can't move while you're dreaming. But sometimes what happens is that you come out of the sleep state while the sleep paralysis is still in effect. So you have the sensation of being trapped with something sitting on your chest. And again, there's a very famous painting by a guy called Fusely called The Nightmare. And there's a lady lying in a bed and she's got something sitting on her chest. That's the neurological aspects of it. But the hag phenomenon really intrigues me because ordinarily what people report seeing is normally a cowled figure normally sitting in the corner in profile or the more modern phenomenon of the hat man. And the idea is that this seems to be an entity that we can perceive when we're in these sleep paralysis states. Now, what fascinates me is it's very consistent. There's a friend of mine, Samantha Lee Treasure, somebody else you need to interview, who's researching this phenomenon, has got a book coming out next year, is going to be published by Inner Traditions on these very subjects. And she's just finished her master's degree in out-of-body experiences, and she's just about to start her PhD in the subject. She tells me that these are consistent. I mean, she's out in South Korea researching it out in South Korea, and it's still consistent in terms of everything. The idea is that it's consistent within certain cultures. And the question is, what is taking place here? And I think what is happening is when we're in these liminal states between sleep and awake, what's called hypnagogia or hypnopompia, our perceptual field broadens again. And we perceive the kind of liminal sensations either side of our perceptual fields. And I think that's what's happening with the hat man and with the hag. Okay, great. Here's one more question from Austin Brooks in the UK. If time collapses at the time of physical death and the person then experiences their lives again and again, but with the possibility of making different choices, are these lives in the imaginal realms only? If not, how are other people in our lives created in these experiences? Might we currently be enacting one of these alternative timelines? That's a very good question. Excellent question, in fact. Um, I would argue that because at the higher level we are one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively, it means effectively all the human beings that you interface with are just as real. And I would cite the examples of the Everett's Many Worlds interpretation, the idea of these concurrent timelines, but they're all inhabited by individuals in the same way. In other words, this is not solipsism. This is not an argument to say that you're the only conscious personality, because ultimately you are part of a greater consciousness that you are part of, as it were. But the question of the roles of other people is that we all live the alternate timelines. And again, I would strongly suggest if you watch, again, Dark, I think, although it's a fiction, it really gets across the ideas of how multiple personalities can exist that are all individuated in the same way. It does that very, very well. But that's an excellent question. In the book, I explain that in great detail, by the way, and put forward various hypotheses for it. But excellent question. Thank you. Okay, great. We have to wrap it up, but I will have a page on BatGap about you and listing the four books that you recommended to me as most important for our discussion. Is Later Life After Death, Cheating the Fairman, The Daemon, and The Hidden Universe. And as you mentioned, you have a dozen books altogether, so people can always go to Amazon or whatever and look at ones that might interest them. Can they and, get the bookshops as well? Yeah, and bookshops, old. yeah, good old bookshops. Those still exist. Anyway, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I hope others have as well. I've really enjoyed listening to your books, and we'll, we'll meet again. And it'll give me an excuse to finish the books that I haven't listened to yet. Thoroughly enjoyable, Rick. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, yet, me too, Anthony. Yet another friend that I've... Yes. 
So thank you for that. That's one thing I love about doing this is I have built this network of amazing friends all over the world. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Talk to you later.